Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Willie. I don't know if you know why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here because it's, uh, you know, the first of the year, and it's on the top of the New Year's Eve resolutions list, right? Go to church more. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe it's just something you do week after week. But I know that you're here because the God of all comfort wants to meet you. Wants to meet you in maybe a way he's never met you before. Wants to comfort you in a, in a way that maybe you've never allowed him to before. I've preached a lot, a lot of sermons over the years. And you always invest time and prayer. And as pastors and leaders, when we meet, you get a sense when you're shepherding God's people, the message that he has for us as individuals, for me, and for us. And so the message this morning, the the sermon title is God of the Broken. God of the Broken. Of the broken, because we've been talking about going deeper, and and you know I I felt like in prayer and, and in my life and in the the season of the church that that's sort of the theme, and that sounds good like on the surface, doesn't it? Because everyone wants to go deeper with Jesus, and everybody wants to sort of press in spiritually and increase their knowledge and and, and all those things. But here's what I'm starting to discover: going deeper is painful. I mean, if we really want to go deeper, there's some, there's some, there's some struggle involved. And, it, and there has to be some trust involved. And so last week and really the past few weeks, we've been talking about God doing a new thing. And so I want to ask you a question because I'm sure that there are people here right now who think that God can't use them. In fact, I'm sure that there are people here right now who read the Bible and who look at other people's testimonies and who think maybe someday in my life, but, and that could be the enemy, could be your flesh, could be you got people in your life that tell you that. Does, I don't know. I just know that that's not of God. We're reading a book in my community group. I've read it before. It's called The Tale of Three Kings, and I want to read the dedication in the book. And he says this, to the brokenhearted Christians coming out of authoritarian groups seeking solace, healing, and hope, may you somehow recover and go on with him who is liberty. And then he says this, and to all brokenhearted Christians, may, may you be so utterly healed that you can still answer the call of him who asks for all because he is all. I'll say that again. To all brokenhearted Christians, may you be so utterly healed that you can still answer the call of him who asks for all because he is all. What if God chooses us not despite, but because of 
our brokenness? What if the thing that has hurt you the most and caused you the most shame and caused you the biggest scars, what if Jesus wants to meet you in that pain and reveal himself to you in a way that could not be more profound, in a way that could not be more needed? We say around here a lot that he wants to take our mess and he wants to turn it into a message. Well, we allow it. See, the scriptures make the case, and I've said it before, that Jesus favors the outcasts. He, he favors the poor. He favors the marginalized, not because of their situation. He doesn't arbitrarily look at people in a certain situation and favor them over somebody else, poor over rich. You know why he favors them? Because of the posture of their heart. Because they're hungry. Because they know they have a need because they're often in a place of just utter dependence. They have a childlike faith. They have a humility. And see, there's nobody in this room that doesn't need to have that posture before God, but we think like the church in Revelation, you know, you, we think we're all set, we think we're good. I mean, you even ask people, hey, how you doing? I'm good, I'm all set. And the Bible says, you think you're all set, but you're really wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. See, that's all of our condition, whether it's literal or figurative. The thing is, when it's literally your condition, you know that. And you recognize your need for God. And you seek after him. But those of us who sort of look good on the outside, who seem to have it together, who seem to have every, everything that everybody else wants, but if you don't have Jesus... You have nothing. And the reality is that you're here and I don't care what you've done and I don't care how much you have and I don't care what you've accomplished. I know that you're here and if you don't know Jesus, there is a longing in your heart. There is an uncertainty. There is a desire. There is a, there's a, a sense of, of just drifting, a, a sense of meaninglessness, a lack of purpose. But God... God meets us in those places of humility and dependence. Think of it like this. We have kids, right? And whether your kids are little or whether your kids are older, sometimes the worst thing for a parent is to watch your kids go through something, some sort of a struggle, and you can't do anything about it. You know, it, maybe it's prolonged and you've watched them struggle with this and you've tried and, and they've got to navigate it themselves, but you're with them and you're loving on them. And then at some point, the, maybe the situation resolves or maybe you've been able to offer comfort or support and guidance and you feel like this is what it means to be a parent. I've done my job well. And they recognize that though painful, they've grown. And yet we fail to recognize that our relationship with God is supposed to be exactly that where we recognize that our perfect heavenly father is with us, that he's never not speaking to us, that he's never not in control, and that he uses our situation and our circumstance, again, we've said, to bring attention to our condition, and our condition is this. We are in need of a savior. And Jesus came to save us. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, we live our lives and we spend a lot of time, you know, based on what we think or what we feel or what somebody's told us. 
But the word of God says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It doesn't say the Lord is near the brokenhearted when they feel it. The Lord saves the crushed in spirit when they're aware of it. 1 Corinthians 1.27, Pastor Jane, one of his favorite scriptures. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. See, if it was me and I was putting a dream team together, I would look and go, who's the most talented? But God goes, who's the most broken? Who's the most desperate? Who can I trust to surrender fully to me? Why? Because then he gets the glory. See, he, he is the dream team. He doesn't need us. He get, we, we get to be part of his plan. But he looks around, and he doesn't see what everybody else sees. He doesn't see on the outside of the cup. He sees our heart. And he says, who's willing to say, here I am, Lord, use me? And then what, he, what does he do? He creates trophies. Nobody looks at me and goes, that Brian Doobie, he's a special guy. I mean, if you do, get to know me, because then I'll quickly dispel that myth for you. Ask my wife. But people do go, man, the, the work God's done in that guy's life, I don't, I don't understand it. Me and, me and Jamie joked that there's a, there's a guy, a preacher, Count Zinzendorf, and he, and he famously said this, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. And we love that. You know why? Because at, at the end of the day, the best thing I can do with my life is point people, point people to Jesus. That's all we can do. Our lives are meant to be a trophy of his mercy and grace. So that when people look at us, they see Christ in us. Matthew 10, verse, uh, sorry, Matthew 18, verse 10. The parable of the lost sheep. Sometimes you read things over and over again and it loses its meaning. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven the angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go over the mountains in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." Do you know how, you know, that, that, again, that sense of a father, you know that God longs for a relationship with you? Paul writes in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what, how to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That means if you get to the place you'll... Where you just, I don't know what to pray, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I, I'm, I'm a mess, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I can't figure it out. Jesus is simply saying this, and we've said before, that all of walking with Jesus is a series of increasingly intimate movements, right? Believe, follow me, believe in me, abide in me, come to me. It's just, a, it's just an invitation to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, abide in me is rest in me. Have your, have your being in me. But Jesus invites every single person in this room, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for your souls. A deep, meaningful rest. A rest that refreshes and renews with living water. 
A restful will never be hungry again. Rest for our souls. And he says, look, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Whatever you've thought religion is, whatever you've thought church is, whatever your bad experience has been with people lording over you, Jesus is like, I've come to overcome. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So only when we can admit to the brokenness, when we can invite Jesus into that brokenness, does the potter begin to use the clay. And God doesn't just call some of us. He calls all of us. And what you most desire is a relationship with your Father in heaven. And he desires that you seek him with all of your heart. And so, Lord, would you right now, would you do what only you could do? Father, the words I have are inadequate, but your words go forward in power. Your spirit is here. Lord, soften hearts, open eyes and ears. Father, help us to be willing to let go of that which we're holding on to tightest, our pain, our anger, our resentment, our fear. Lord, we want to be effective for you. We believe, help our unbelief. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the title of the message this morning again is God of the Broken. God of the Broken. And I want us to look at this longing and how we tend to become most aware of it and that in a profound sense, we can be so profoundly changed by God and yet our tendency is to try to avoid the struggle and the trials and strive to remove them or to numb ourselves to them because we are uncomfortable in seeing the potential in the struggle. We are uncomfortable with the uncertainty. We're uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. But God's called us to grow. And at the end of a period of growth, I mean, they say weightlifters do this. I don't know that. It's probably hard to tell by looking at me, but I don't lift weights. But they say that when people lift weights, they're sore after, and then eventually they like that. It doesn't make sense to me either. But apparently that's a thing. So even though it's painful, you feel good because you know, well, it's, you know, it's gonna, I'm going to feel better in the next time, right? But I get the principle, right? We don't like to feel uncomfortable, but we realize, recognize sometimes that's necessary for growth. In fact, I don't know of a time where it's not necessary for growth. We don't grow when we're comfortable, so we say here that we want to love people back to life. Now that necessitates genuine relationships. It authenticates, it, 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 I'm sorry, necessitates authentic community. It means that we got to be real with one another. And that starts with us being real with the Lord. Because listen, nobody wants to come, nobody wants, I mean, we're all, you know, we've all been through the, you know, just again, Clean up the outside. Make everything look good on the outside. Seem more religious, and then you're a mess inside. We don't want to do that. We, we say it all the time. We don't want to play church. Nobody wants to pretend. The whole world's pretending. This is a place of healing and hope. And God allows us to be broken, not because he wants us to be broken, because he knows our brokenness is a pathway to healing and to peace. And he knows that when we're broken vessels, he can use us. I was preaching not long ago, and I think you remember I said in the midst of my preaching, we don't surrender to be done, we surrender to begin. We don't surrender to be done, we surrender to begin. The beginning of our walk with Jesus is surrender. 
But I want to amend that by saying, eventually and always, we must surrender. You can't, you, you, walking with Jesus doesn't just mean you think about walking with Jesus. Walking does, with Jesus doesn't just mean, you know, you tell everybody that walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus means you're following him. That doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you recognize that your effectiveness, I said before, like if you like math, your effectiveness is equal to or greater than your surrender. People say, I want to do great things for God. Good, surrender to him. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. You, you don't, oh, Lord, give me some superhero powers. No. You surrender, Lord, I give you my life. I, I accept your gift of, of, of dying on the cross for me. I accept that you paid the penalty for my sin. I accept that you gave your life for me, and in return, I give my life back to you. Give me opportunity. Nobody prays that prayer and is like, yeah, I don't know. God doesn't do anything with that. But we have all these conditions. We look at everybody else. We have all these reasons why God can't use us. So I want to ground this whole thing, and I want to ask and answer two questions. What is the biggest need that we have, and what does God do about that need? What is the biggest need we have as human beings? Max Lucado said it this way, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. We need it and we need to be saved. Jesus didn't come to give you a your life 2.0. He came to give you his life. His life in and through you. And that is better than any version of you that you can imagine. Trust me. I know, you know, and we've, we've picked on it before, but, you know, your best life now, I don't want my best life. I want Jesus' life in me. So Brian's best life is a far cry from God living in Brian. Luke 2.11, for today in the city of David, there, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement and it deserves full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And so I want us to reflect this morning on three stories. And they have some things in common, but there are some differences. And these three stories are of people I wouldn't have picked. Maybe you wouldn't have picked to magnify the name of Jesus. I mean, in some instances, we don't even know their names. And yet this morning here, some 2,000 years later, we're still going to talk about their life. Because it brings glory to God. Three stories, a thief, we don't even know his name. Just known as a thief, a criminal. Imagine that, your life is reduced to that. I don't know who you are, I just know you're a thief, you're a criminal. You're known by your biggest flaw, not, not for something good. Nobody wants to be known as a thief. The next story is of a terrorist, and what do we think of terrorists right now? I mean, post 9-11, and you know, when I was a kid, you didn't know much about terrorists, and all of a sudden, that's all you think about. We know what terrorists are. They cause terror. They, they cause mayhem. They, they promote fear. 
We're very familiar with terrorists. And I don't know about you, if I'm honest, I mean, there's been times I've prayed for everybody that I can think of, no matter how evil they are. But sometimes, if we're honest, I'm like, all right, Lord, well, if you're not going to save this guy, can you take him out then? I mean, like, let's be honest, right? Because they're terrorists. We, they're unredeemed. They don't have, all they do is cause mayhem and, and violence. And so that would be the last person you'd pick. Unless you were God. And then a tramp. The woman caught in adultery. Again, we don't even know her name. A thief, a terrorist, and a tramp whose society had discarded and labeled. I don't know that there were churches praying that their lives would be turned around. I think that, that they would probably look at, well, this is the end. And yet they encountered Jesus Christ and they were profoundly changed and their future was rewritten by the thing we tried to avoid most in our life. Pain and brokenness and humility. Read something else out of this book and it just talked about King David. And it says, David was caught in a very uncomfortable position. However, he seemed to grasp a deep understanding of the unfolded drama in which he had been caught. David seemed to understand something that few of even the wisest men of his day understood. Something that even in our day, when men maybe are wiser still, even few understand. And what was that? David understood that God did not have but wanted very much to have men and women who would live with pain because God wanted to use broken vessels. See, David wasn't even considered. I mean, when everybody lined up for the job interview, David, David wasn't even in line. David knew what it was to live a life of solitude, of rejection. David knew what it meant to feel alone, to live in fear, to be persecuted, to ask, why would you do this? Even after he was chosen as the Lord's anointment, anointed, at any point, David could have looked and been like, what's the deal? I mean, the whole book's about David and Saul. I want to give it up. The point is that the reason God allowed Saul in David's life was to take the Saul out of David's life. In other words, Saul wasn't David's problem. The heart of Saul was David's problem. And so we all have that. We all have that heart far from God. That heart where we refuse to surrender and God uses our circumstance and uses our situations and uses other people to break us down to that place of simple need of him to say, God, I understand and I trust you. Take my life. And there is never, ever a time when after we do that, we have regret and we don't feel his power and his presence. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's easy, but I promise you it's always better. It is always, always, always better. Jesus assures us, but still we worry, still we wander, still we want what we should not want, and still we come up short every time. Why didn't this goal, why didn't this accomplishment, why didn't this purchase, why, why do I still feel the same? Because you have a God-shaped hole in your heart. In John 16, we read it a lot. Jesus said, I've told you these things. 
I've explained how it works. I've told you that persecution would come. I've told you that people may hate you. I told you that you'll suffer in my name, but I've told you them so that you would have peace in me. Not in your circumstance, not in your situation, that you would have peace in me. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've won the victory. It's temporary. Hold on. Don't give up. Doesn't say, I will never leave you or forsake you except sometimes. I will never leave you or forsake you except when you don't deserve me. It just says, I will never leave you or forsake you if you are my child. Let's look at each of the encounters with Jesus, a thief. Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there, hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You're supposed to be God. This is what I want you to do. And this is what I want you to do. It. Why don't you do it? How many times have we said that to God, mocking him? Just like the thief, just like both thieves, both criminals. And the other answered, rebuking him, do you even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was saying, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. See, he didn't know a lot. He didn't have a chance to do a lot. I don't think he had a denominational affiliation. I don't think he was a Bible scholar. He just knew that he was rightly condemned, that he stood guilty, that he was about to get what he deserved, but that because of this man, because of the identity of this Jesus he mocked, that he had hope, that his eternity could be rewritten, All he did was believe, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. In addition to what we read in Luke, it's also in Matthew 27 and in Mark. Two thieves we know were crucified beside him. They both started out mocking him. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how you've lived your life. Doesn't matter what you've committed. Doesn't matter how you mocked him. We don't know what that thief's name is, but we know the most important thing about his life. He's with Jesus in paradise. Paradise. I don't care in the end if anybody knows my name. I don't care if I have a gravestone at some point. I just want somebody to be able to say, right now he's with Jesus in paradise. Not because of anything he did, but because of everything Christ did. One of the thieves responded in faith to the message of salvation was taken to paradise. It is remarkable to think that while hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, Jesus had the mind to minister to somebody else. Can you imagine what that would have taken in that moment? The moment that he dies for us. And yet it is a miracle that one thief, while in agony himself, heard the Spirit of God and responded. There are people here who are in agony right now. And I've said before a million times, your past is not going to keep you from what God has for you. Only your pride will. 
I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care what you've done this morning. You're not going to leave here, not surrender to God because of your past. If you do, it's just because you're pride. It's just because the Spirit of God is calling, and you've got something you can't let go of. While the disciples were abandoning the Lord at this very moment, this man answered the call, and his sins were forgiven. Jesus tells us in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That the other thief rejected Jesus is remarkable. An encounter with Jesus was the difference. How about the terrorist? You know who the terrorist was? Forget about who he was. Here's a better description. You know who the terrorist was to become? Because again, I mean, I'm picking somebody that I want to be on the Christian dream team. I'm not going to look for this guy. Talking about Paul. We talked about him last week. Paul was a terrorist by every definition. Paul's plan was to murder and kill followers of the way. Everything he did, everything he got authorized to do, everything that gave him pride. Paul was a terrorist. And God looked out and said, all right, I want somebody to bring the message. I want somebody to write most of the New Testament. And this guy, the guy who's been persecuting my church and killing people. And yeah, that's the guy I pick. Yeah, he did. Why? Well, we're going to see why. I think you can probably understand why. That this same Saul, verse, uh, chapter 9 says, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Right, he's, he's enraged, he goes to the priest, give me some letters, give me some authorization so I can keep going and everybody I can find, I can bind them up and I can bring them. We can wipe this out. Paul's life was dedicating to, dedicated to squashing the movement that Jesus began. And Jesus said, I'm gonna use you to spread the movement that I began. In case you think he can't use you. So as he was traveling, it happened, he was approaching Damascus, and a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Paul, I don't care who you used to be. Paul, I don't care what you've done. Paul, I'm going to rewrite your eternity. Paul, I'm going to change your destiny. The scriptures go, go on. He's brought to Ananias, and verse 15 says this, The Lord said to him, For he is a chosen instrument of mine, talking about Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus said, I'm going to use him in a mighty and powerful way. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be good. I'm going to bring that Paul to a place where the thing he was most proud of, the thing he led with, is going to be the thing he goes, that, I don't even care about that. I don't even consider that to have any value at all. In fact, that's rubbish. And the word he uses is, is obscene. We can't even say it when you compare. Like, it, it's, you know, rubbish. It's garbage. It's trash. My, my accomplishments, what I've done, to, compared to what? He says this, to be compared to knowing Christ and to be found in him. Paul knows what it's like to abide in Jesus. 
And the scriptures tell us that Saul begins to preach Christ. Now for several days, he was was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Verse 21, all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? In other words, what could possibly have changed this guy so radically that he's now the opposite of who he was? Jesus Christ, and Paul gets to testify to that. So God looks out and he doesn't go, all right, who's got the most talent? He goes, who's got a heart? Who's got a heart that would be willing to live after me? Paul heard the call of God and Jesus rewrote his story and he wants to rewrite yours no matter who you are. And the third of our examples was the woman caught in adultery. About to be stoned in John 8. You know, we read these scriptures and we, we very much sanitize them. We very much take away the, the reality, the, the actuality, the, the power and the presence of these moments. So as Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in his midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now you have to understand, there's a lot going on here, but they were right about the law. It's interesting, you know, there's no male party involved. There's nobody else, just the woman. But the point is that this was the law. They were right. And so how's Jesus going to respond to this? Now can you imagine this woman who's already living a life filled with shame and brokenness, already feeling that society has made very clear to her that she is the bottom of the barrel, that she's the least of these, that she is less than. And now here are these authority figures, and they bring her to this place where she's already embarrassed, and she's already got no self-worth, and here she is now, and she's presented before Jesus. And they say, you know what the law says? And she recognizes she recognizes that she's a sinner. She understands. And so, like the thief, like Saul, she, maybe this is how my story's going to end. This is it for me. And let's read what happens. And it's really a, a brilliant exchange, what Jesus says. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I mean, Jesus doesn't argue the, the, the justification of the punishment. Jesus simply says, okay, but why don't we start with whoever doesn't have sin, why don't you, you start? I mean, really, it's a remarkable thing to do. I mean, think about it. He, he just put it back on them, and, and they would stand there and wonder. I mean, what, what do you do? And the scripture says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones who had lived longer, who had sinned longer, who recognized. And it says, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, and he stood up and said to her, woman, where are you? 
I'm sorry, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This woman, who had been broken by the world, who had committed her share of transgressions, who had been ridiculed, who felt like her story was going to end in shame and in guilt and in condemnation, and who felt all those things she felt, and who opened her eyes and stood simply before Jesus, who said, I don't condemn you. In fact, I'm going to pay the penalty for you, so go and sin no more. I've set you free from your past, and I've set you free to a new future. See, Jesus rewrites our story so that he can use us. Because an encounter with Jesus changes everything. And I read this. It says, when Jesus bent down, this is a pastor, said, when Jesus bent down, I imagine maybe he was writing the names of sins and then blotting them out like an Etch-a-Sketch. The fact is, we don't know for sure what Jesus was writing. We don't know who saw his message. But it's possible that once the crowd had dispersed, he was left to deal with the woman himself, and he'd written down only one word, forgiven. And whether that message was erased by him or the wind, her sins were forgiven. See, sometimes we come to the end of our life before we finally admit to submit ourselves after a lifetime of mocking Jesus. But he meets us. He meets us in our sin and he takes us from the judgment we deserve. Sometimes he knocks us down from high places that we have in the world because he's calling us to something even higher. I've heard a quote, and I've said this before here, who among you, if called to save sinners, would lower your position to that of a king or a general? Who among you, if called to preach the gospel, would lower your position to anything else? See, make no mistake, he is in the midst of our brokenness. And he uses it. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort. Paul's going, God's comforting you. He's rewriting your story. He's redeeming your past. He's taking your mess and turning it into a message. He's going to empower you and use you and give you purpose and meaning and value in your life so that you can be used, so that you can be his vessel. Don't resist the very thing that prepares you for the next thing God has for you. The reality is an encounter with Jesus, a true surrendered encounter with Jesus will always change everything. And I promise you, it'll look nothing like you think and it'll be better than you imagine. I promise you. David Wilkins said something. I'm going to tweak the words a little bit for, for this purpose. I'll tell you, he said this. David Wilkinson was the founder of Teen Challenge. He said, certainly we cannot claim a magical cure for addiction. I'm just going to say sin, right? Certainly we cannot claim a magical cure for sin. The devil is so deadly strong that any such claim would be foolish. All we can say, 
All we can say is that we have found a power that captures a person more strongly than anything else, but he captures only to liberate. He captures only to liberate. Liberate. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom from your past, freedom from sin, freedom from yourself, freedom from shame, freedom from brokenness. It is for freedom. And he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not allow yourself to be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm and trust him and allow him to use you. I'm going to invite the worship team and Pastor Jamie to come up. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in John 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, also in me. There are his disciples and they're gathered and things don't look the way they think they're supposed to look and they're not sure what this plan of following Jesus is gonna look like. And so Jesus is going, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. There's more than enough room in my father's house or I wouldn't have told you that. And then Thomas says this, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? God, we're not, I'm not sure what it's going to look like. Tell me more. I need to know. And Jesus' response to Thomas and to each of us is this, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the path. I am the source. I am truth. God's, God heals those who are broken. He comforts those who seek him. And he strengthens those who rely on him. We read last week Isaiah 43, the second half of it. And I want to have you stand and I want to close. I want you to close your eyes. And before, before we worship together, I just want you to listen to these words. Do not be afraid. I will save you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through deep waters, I will be with you. Your troubles will not overwhelm you. When you pass through fire, you will not be burned. The hard trials that come will not hurt you. For I am the Lord your God, the holy God of Israel who saves you. And in verse five, he says, do not be afraid for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Church, he says that to each one of us right now. The God who created the universe, who sustains it, who desires your heart and your life, who wants to use you. Do not be afraid. I am with you.